You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. Later in the program, WFHB Correspondent News Director Cade Young speaks with IUPUI researcher Nir Menakemi about parents' attitudes when it comes to vaccinating their children against COVID-19. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we revisit the Sunrise Movement Rises Over Bloomington, a feature from WFHB Correspondent Nathaniel Weinzapfel on the environmental group Sunrise Bloomington. More in the bottom half of our program, but first, your daily headlines. Up first, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. The Glen Mills Schools, the oldest existing reform school in the United States until it was shut down in 2019, is seeking to reopen under a new name. In June, an entity called the Clock Tower Schools formed with the mission of running a court-ordered educational program for boys. In September, Clock Tower quietly submitted an application for a new license with the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services the same agency that shut down the prestigious reform school after a 2019 Philadelphia Inquirer investigation revealed decades of systemic abuse and cover-ups. Lawmakers and youth advocates are already calling for the state to reject the new application. Officials say no decision has been made. Much remains unclear about the rebrand from Glen Mills to Clock Tower, likely an allusion to the massive timepiece that sits atop the main campus building. What is clear is that the school has been busy courting state officials since its closure two years ago. Glenn Mills paid more than $160,000 on lobbying efforts between April 2019 and September 2021, according to disclosure records filed with the state. Clock Tower has not reported any lobbying activity. Founded in 1826 as the Philadelphia House of Refuge, Glen Mills long held distinction as the oldest school for delinquent boys in the country. The institution drew court-ordered placements from across the country and netted more than $40 million in annual revenue, largely from taxpayers. Philadelphia, which accounted for about 40% of Glen Mills students, paid $52,000 per year for each boy it sent to the suburban campus. Within weeks of reporting by the Philadelphia Inquirer that found counselors violently attacked boys for minor misconduct and then coerced the abuse into staying quiet, juvenile courts across the country pulled boys from the campus, the Delaware County District Attorney launched a criminal investigation, and the state DHS shut down Glenn Mills for the first time in nearly two centuries, saying the systemic nature of the abuse warranted locking the doors for good. In the wake of the scandal, Governor Tom Wolf also announced an overhaul of the state's licensing process and convened a task force to conjure up ideas on how to fix the juvenile justice system, which recently released a 64-page report with dozens of recommended reforms. 
but advocates and lawmakers are questioning how much has really changed and whether those charges warrant a second chance for Glenn Mills under a new name. Philadelphia City Council member Helen Jim, who sat on Wolf's Juvenile Justice Task Force, said transparency alone won't cut it. She said the state had not taken sufficient action to correct the problems at both Glen Mills and other residential youth facilities that have harbored abuse in recent years. Wolf's office said it is working to update DHS licensing regulations and enact other reforms, some of which require legislative approval. An Illinois police union ousted an officer from its membership who faces criminal charges for exposing a squad car video that shows his fellow officers slapping and cursing a man dying of a drug overdose. Sergeant Javier Escueda, a 27-year-old veteran of the Joliet Police Department, said that he's become a pariah among his coworkers since July 2020, when he publicly shared footage from January of that year showing how officers treated a handcuffed black man in medical distress. Officers slapped Eric Lurie, restricted his airway, and shoved a baton in his mouth hours before his death. Escueras faces up to 20 years in prison after department officials opened a criminal investigation into his actions and prosecutors charged him with four counts of official misconduct. Members of the Joliet Police Officers Association on Wednesday voted 35 to 1 to expel. In a letter, union leaders described his conduct as reprehensible. Quote, They all wanted me charged, they all want me gone, and by doing this, it's gratification for them. And after everything that's happened, do I really want to be associated with them? Escueta said of the union's vote. Kite Line airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m., and it's available online at wfhb.org and wherever you listen to your podcasts. We know that following the local news cycle can be difficult. To make it easier on you, we are providing a five-minute review of yesterday's headlines. In this excerpt, WFHB News gave an update on Afghan evacuees who are housed at Camp Atterbury in Johnson County, Indiana. Over 3,000 Afghan refugees have resettled throughout the United States after being temporarily housed at Camp Atterbury. Camp Atterbury is located in Johnson County, Indiana, and it serves as a training base for the Indiana National Guard. Nearly three months ago, the base was selected as a location to temporarily house evacuees fleeing Afghanistan after the Taliban takeover. During a press conference last week, Colonel Mike Grundman, who serves as the base's installation commander, said the effort has given evacuees hope for the future. 
Indiana, its communities, its individuals, its organizations, and the state government has been absolutely terrific uh, to maintaining a, a even flow of, of donated gifts, goods, services, uh, volunteers, linguists, dentists, uh, phrase books for American soldiers. It has been a truly incredible outpouring from, from communities and organizations alike, and I cannot stress that enough. Since September, Camp Atterbury has brought in over 7,000 refugees, less than 10% of the 82,000 people who have relocated to the United States as part of the Operation Allies Welcome Initiative. As of now, roughly 250 people have permanently resettled in Indiana. State officials say the goal is to resettle over 700 people throughout cities in Indiana, such as Bloomington, South Bend, Fort Wayne, and Indianapolis, among others. Operation Allies Welcome works with various resettlement agencies to permanently house those fleeing Afghanistan. Exodus Refugee Immigration stands among those agencies to assist with the effort. Executive Director Cole Varga discussed the long-term process of resettlement. Some of our guests here um, at Atterbury speak quite a bit of English and, and may be very successful and have uh, college degrees and other work histories, and some may not, and that's okay, and that's why we'll stick around and, and help them with what they need, whether that's ongoing employment support, whether that's helping single parents uh, figure out child care, uh, whether that's uh, mental health needs. We have free mental health services we offer through our office, for example. We have women's and youth program services that we offer for just specific needs that uh, that women may need or that youth may need coming into a new city, maybe not speaking English and being thrown into school. They might need a few extra supports. So we try to set them up with mentors or, or volunteers to help them adjust to, to their new life in the U.S. Nahid Sharafi says she came to Camp Atterbury in early September and her journey has been, quote, long and scary, unquote. Sharafi fought back tears as she explained that she was separated from several family members during the evacuation. However, she says she's excited for her new life in the United States. I'm very excited that I start my new life in the Indiana and where I hope that to continue my study in Bloomington University. I have a message to the people of the United States, and I want to say that People of the United States has a heart of the gold. Thank you so much for everything. I'm sure that in different and in difficult condition, they never leave Afghan people alone. I'm sure that since I came to the Adderbury camp, I learned many things from them, especially from the army, especially from the Department of State. You know that they behave very patiently and justly with Afghan people. And we learn many things of them. Thank you so much for everything. And I hope that I can make the world around me a better place for others like them. Thank you so much. Indiana residents can still donate items for Afghan refugees at eight locations throughout the state. For more information, you can visit teamrubicon.org slash resettlement.
In today's feature report, WFHB News Director Cade Young spoke with Nir Menakemi, Director of Health Policy at the School of Public Health at IUPUI, about parents' attitudes when it comes to vaccinating their children against COVID-19. We turn to Young for more. Well, Nir Menakemi, welcome to the WFHB Local News. Thank you. Good to be here. We appreciate having you. So first off, the COVID-19 vaccine has been approved for children ages 5 through 11. Uh, so far, almost 62,000 Indiana residents of that age group have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Do you expect those numbers to climb here in Indiana? Yeah, I uh, definitely expect those numbers to climb. Uh, I know we're only in the first few weeks since that's been approved. My 11-year-old daughter is among those 60-some-odd thousand Hoosiers that got their first dose. In fact, she got her second dose today. I think there's just, you know, the timing of the holidays, The some parents just wanting to wait a couple of weeks just to see if there's any snafus with the rollout. I expect that number to continue to climb how high it goes, I think, is another question uh, that's still open-ended. Absolutely. I appreciate you you touching on that. And I wanted to get into perennial attitudes when it comes to vaccinating their children. I'm sure many parents will want to vaccinate their children to protect them against COVID-19, but there will be other parents who may be more skeptical. So why do you think their skepticism uh, in, in some parents when there aren't in others? I, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I think it's been challenging on parents to try to gather information from trusted sources in a way to make the personal decision on what to do with their child. I think some people have access to the expertise and to the you know accurate information more so than others, and I think it's the responsibility of lots of us, whether it's in the research world, in the clinical world, or even in the journalistic world, to make sure that people have access to accurate information. Absolutely. I think misinformation is a huge problem when it comes to vaccines. So I, I appreciate you touching on that. Now, I want to shift gears here a little bit. Schools require students to get vaccinated quite a bit, and that depends state to state. But if you think about measles, chickenpox, hepatitis, those sort of things, schools do require vaccines. Now, in your opinion, do you think schools should require the COVID-19 vaccine or do you think it's best to leave it to a family's decision? I, I think, you know, there's so much unease right now about this issue that even though I personally would be supportive of schools making that kind of decision, I don't know that it's the right time quite yet. I think we need the rollout to continue to go, let people do it voluntarily. I think eventually when you know the vaccine gets full authorization for the five to 11 year olds uh, and is not just on emergency use, I, I think it'd be maybe time to reconsider that or think about it further. Or, But I, I just think it's premature despite my personal belief that I wouldn't have a problem with it if my child's school said do it, because obviously I've already said we've done it. I, I think we need to tread lightly not to turn people off with the wrong message of, you know, this is required. I think right now 
I think about the vaccine no different than I think about seatbelts and car seats for children. You know, if you go for a ride with a child who isn't seatbelted, they might not have any bad outcome. You know, you're not, you might not get into a crash. And if you do, they might not get hurt. That doesn't mean you'd want to take that chance. And so right now, I think the time is to let parents make the decision what's best for their kids. And for me and my family, it's been to vaccinate, you know, our children. And so we'll get to a time when, you know, we can revisit whether it should be on one of the required vaccines in schools. We're not there yet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And given the hyper polarization and partisan nature of this virus, that makes a lot of sense. And until we can get everybody on board, uh, that, that's probably best. So I appreciate your insight there. Now, this must be a difficult time for students, right? Having to wear masks, abide by social distancing protocols. Would getting enough kids vaccinated, would that lead to some sense of normalcy in schools? I, I definitely think it's part of how we get back to normalcy. You know, when you think about it, the vaccines in adults and even in the older kids have been working exceptionally well. If you even look at the Indiana State Department of Health's website and you look at what proportion of vaccinated people have ever gotten a breakthrough infection, it's a very small percent, one or two percent. And when you look at what proportion of vaccinated Hoosiers have been hospitalized, it's a fraction of one percent. When you look at what proportion have died, it's an even smaller fraction. And it's concentrated in high-risk individuals, mostly above a certain age that we would consider senior citizens of the state. With that said, the vaccines are working so well that if you are vaccinated, you're by and large back to pre-pandemic levels of worry as it pertains to, let's say, the flu in 2019. So your chance as being fully vaccinated of dying of COVID is roughly similar, maybe even a little bit better than what it was of the flu in 2019. And if we use 2018, 2019 flu season as what quote unquote normal feels like, vaccines get us there. Now, why are we still masking? Uh, Why are we still masking in the schools? It's in part because the only way to protect the unvaccinated from uh, infections and hospitalizations and death is to reduce infections. And how can you reduce infections if we're not utilizing vaccines except to go back to 2020 protocols of social distancing and masking and hand hygiene and surface hygiene and all the things that we did last year. So if you're vaccinated, you're back to 2019 flu. If you're unvaccinated, you're actually worse off than 2020, you know, pandemic in part because the economy is now fully open and so everyone is back in intermixing with each other. And the Delta variant, we know, is more transmissible. And so it's even easier for an unvaccinated person to get infected today. So there's no question the vaccines put us on the road back to normalcy, including in the schools, which is what I interpreted the question to be about. So I want to shift gears to misinformation. I know you had touched on it in the beginning, but in our fragmented media landscape today, People are getting their news and information from unverified sources, oftentimes on social media. And this is particularly relevant for vaccines. So what can we do better as a society to deliver fact-based information to parents as they ponder whether or not they want to get their children vaccinated? I think one of the 
traditional, important, respected, and trusted sources of health information for parents have been their child's doctor or healthcare provider. I almost wish we can, you know, get through all the noise on the radio and on social media and on TV and just have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. I, I, I am confident that many parents who ask their pediatricians or their family doctors or their nurse practitioners that take care of their kids, you know, year in, year out, what they think, I am confident a very, very large percentage of them would encourage the parent to consider vaccinating their child. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Now, that's all the questions I have prepared for you, but I want to give you the last word. Is there anything you would like to add before we part ways? The vaccines are safe. They're effective. We are lucky to have them, and it's something that, you know, Individuals have to make decisions for themselves, but, you know, it's my job to track the, the data, to do the research, to understand what the, the risks and benefits are. And from my perspective, I can see very few reasons not to get this vaccine and lots and lots of reasons to get it. And so I hope others can get to that same conclusion that, uh, that I did and my family has. Absolutely. Well, Nir Menakemi, thank you for coming on and talking with us on the WFHB Local News. Thank you. Up next, we revisit a report we aired last week titled, The Sunrise Movement Rises Over Bloomington. Sunrise Bloomington, a local subset of the nationwide Sunrise Movement, recently made headlines for their calls for the Indiana University Foundation to divest from fossil fuels and reinvest in clean energy. WFB correspondent Nathaniel Weinzappel speaks with Allison Alda, a member of Sunrise Bloomington, to better understand what they hope to achieve and how optimistic they are for the future. What you just listened to is from a recent protest from the nationwide climate change organization called the Sunrise Movement. Launched in 2017, the Sunrise Movement was founded to, quote, shift the Overton window on climate policy, unquote, and promote strong environmental policies, such as the Green New Deal. The movement organizes multiple protests for this cause and has many hubs throughout the country, including in Bloomington, Indiana. Sunrise Bloomington member Allison Aldi a student at Indiana University studying environmental health, recently spoke with WFHB to help better explain what the Sunrise Movement is and how the Bloomington Movement differs. The Sunrise Movement is a nationwide movement led by climate activists, and our goals are to promote sustainability and climate justice. 
Um, specifically for our Bloomington hub, we have the goal right now to encourage IU to disclose how much they have invested in fossil fuels, to divest, and then to reinvest into sustainable organizations. As Allison stated, Sunrise Bloomington seeks to have Indiana University, quote, disclose, divest, and reinvest, unquote. And Allison provides an understanding of what this means. Indiana University is a public institution. Where their investments are is not public information. So our first demand is to disclose. So we want Indiana University to disclose how much money they have invested in fossil fuels. Once we've reached that goal, our next goal is to demand that Indiana University divest from any fossil fuel industries. And then with that money that they have divested, we want them to reinvest into sustainable companies and sustainable organizations rather than organizations that are causing the destruction of our planet. Over the past few years, Sunrise Bloomington and other organizations have sought to have meetings with the Indian University Foundation to help further their cause. Allison explained what purpose the meetings hold in the overall goals of Sunrise Bloomington. With our meetings, we are hoping to meet with the IU Foundation. And by we, I don't just mean the Sunrise Movement Bloomington Hub. I mean the entire community, the IU community, um, the Bloomington community, the Indiana community. Um, we want to have an open dialogue with IU Foundation to make sure that the money that we pay with our tuition is going to sustainable organizations rather than to fossil fuel industries. And we want that conversation to be an open and public conversation. Back in October, the Indian University Foundation and Sunrise Bloomington had actually organized a face-to-face -face meeting to discuss these goals. However, the meeting was canceled by the IU Foundation due to Sunrise's call for the meeting to be both public and for the community to participate. Sunrise was motivated by the need for transparency, with IU hoping for a more private conversation. Despite the setback, Allison is hopeful for a future meeting. I think that Indiana University Foundation, based off uh, what they're saying publicly about their goals to sustainability, I think that they are taking the climate crisis seriously and the next step to prove to us that they are taking the climate crisis seriously is to divest from fossil fuels. Early this year, Indiana University named Pamela Witten as the 19th president of the university. After years of unsuccessful calls for the university to divest from fossil fuels, Sunrise Bloomington is optimistic that the change in leadership will finally bring them the opportunity they were looking for. You know, I'm really hopeful. Um, president Pamela Whitman, she recently made a statement about um, Indiana University's promise to sustainability, mentioning some things, including IUPUI and how we rank with sustainability worldwide. And like I kind of mentioned earlier, I think that the next step to really fulfilling that promise to sustainability and to climate justice is to divest from fossil fuels. So I personally feel like Indiana University wants to do this. While Sunrise Bloomington may seem extremely critical of Indiana University, Allison explains that this is not the case 
and that their concerns come from a place of appreciation for the university as a whole. I am really proud to be a Hoosier. I myself am a student at Indiana University studying environmental health, and I'm really proud to be a part of this educational institution. Um, But I do really encourage that Indiana University disclose if they want to stick to their promise of sustainability. The best way to do that is to divest from fossil fuels. Nothing can go wrong by divesting from fossil fuels. And in fact, not divesting is going to have a bigger impact on the lives of not only Hoosiers, but the rest of the world. If any listener supports Sunrise Bloomington or wants to support, Allison states that you can find us on Instagram at Sunrise B Town, on Twitter at Sunrise B Town, and on Facebook at Sunrise Bloomington. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our features were produced by Cade Young and Nathaniel Weinsapfel. Kite Line is produced by Mia Bench. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. And for WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Benedict Jones. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program devoted to exploring our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB. WFHB.